You are listening to the In Perspective Weekly Podcast with Bob Branco and Peter O'Toole. Hello, welcome once again to In Perspective. My name is Bob Branco. This is episode 264. Without further ado, let me introduce my good friend, colleague, and co-host of the program, Peter Alchel, from what I understand is in a hot Columbia, Missouri today. We're supposed to have really interesting weather this weekend, 4th of July. Hot today, thunderstorms tomorrow and Sunday, and then high of 97 on Monday. So it, the summer is here. I'm not a fan of summer, but I have no control with the weather. So, Before we continue with our guests and our topics for today, let me offer thanks to those people who make our podcast available to the general public. And those people include our media outlets, our producer Raymond Gay, Tom and Lynn from the Rosie's Place chat line, and Jacqueline Sylvia from JS Web Solutions, who archives our shows on my website, which is www.brancoevents.com. Today, we have a guest that we call him the Jack of All Trades because he is involved with a lot of different venues. He is the outreach coordinator for Bookshare. He's an athlete. He's an author. And he's also the director of Vision Services with Mississippi State University. And I'm talking about Tony Candela. Tony, it's a pleasure and an honor for you to be on In Perspective with us today. Thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. So, Tony, uh, in promoting you, uh, well, I should, let, me, let me back up. Um, I sort of knew you as an apparition before I read uh, your, your memoir, uh, and so, uh, having thought about what I understand about your life, I've sort of called you or marketed you as the four A person: author, athlete, advocate, and administrator. And so, I'd like to sort of talk about um, each of those roles and how they sort of fit into each other. And so, to get the ball started, let's talk about your your most recent role, which is as an author. Talk about your your books that you that you've written. Okay, well, I wrote um, a memoir. And I wrote a science fiction novella. And the same publisher, Christian Faith Publishing, um, agreed to publish them both. And uh, they were both labors of love. I started both of them right around the same time, 2006, 2007, and uh, finished them in a few years. And then um, they sat there, both of them, and I would pick them up every now and again and tweak them. Um, and what started me on the novella was different from what started me on the memoir. Um, but what started me on a novella was, uh, the, uh, the, the way things were going with the United States involved in two wars, uh, Republican presidential administration. And it was very easy to, to think about a dystopian society. And that got me started on the novella. And, uh, what started me on the memoir was uh, I was at the time dating a lady who was a very smart lady and a good writer in her own right. And she just inspired me to write. So I thought I would write the memoir um, from the point of view of my life as a blind person who was involved in sports and what life lessons I learned from sports. And the novella, I decided uh, it was going to be a dystopian society. And of course, they say, write about what you know. So I thought the best thing to do would be write about blind people and how they might exist 
in this dystopian society, mostly neglected because everything was being devoted to the military defense and things, things like that. And how would, how would people react? Um, and so those two things is what got me going. A few years ago, the, just, just before the pandemic hit, both books came out. About a month and a half later, the pandemic hit. All my little in-person uh, you know, book readings and things like that, that I, at least I had imagined I was going to be doing, um, everything shut down. Sales on the books has been very low. Um, I do some promoting every now and again and uh, still try to push them. They're, they're out there. Um, so from the point of view of a published author uh, who, after one gets published, people start mentioning to you that your books are supposed to make money, um, that was really never my goal. Um, I, I haven't made much money, but I do still do a little promoting. So I, I'm going to focus if, uh, on your memoir primarily because um, I, I find your life really interesting. Um, so give give us the title of your memoir, please. Sure, it's um, it's a it's a little pun on on words from wrestling, uh, one of my my sports. Stand up or sit out. Memories and musings of a blind wrestler, runner, and all around regular guy. So let's talk. Let's let's. So we talked about your authorship a little bit. We may come back to it. Uh, but before we do, before I go any further, how can people order your books or find information about who you are and your and your writing? Um, I've got an author page on um, uh, Amazon.com. So if you just look me up by my name, Anthony Candela, you will find both books there. Also, I do have both books uh, um, on Bookshare. I haven't been able to get them to uh, record them by the National Library Service, but they are on Bookshare for people who know that resource. I happen to work for them. And so they're, at least they're available in adapted format there. And how do you spell your last name? C-A-N-D-E-L-A. So one L. C-A-N-D-E-L-A. Yes. And Anthony Candela and look under Amazon. And I know they're on Bookshare because I, I read the memoir. Um, so um, that's great. So, But before you continue, yeah. Peter, Tony, for the benefit of listeners who are unfamiliar with Bookshare, and there are those of us who are, and that doesn't mean Bookshare is not a good service because it certainly is. Could you briefly describe what Bookshare is? Sure. It's... um. Basically, it's a book download service, uh, very much like BARD is through the National Library Service. So if you can download a book from BARD, you can download a book from Bookshare. Uh, Bookshare uh, serves um, people with learning disabilities and visual impairments and other people with print disabilities. So they, they have a variety of different formats that you have to choose from when you download a book. So most of us will think about just downloading the, the, the audio format, it's what I do. Uh, but there are people who are visual, um, who can download visual formats, various types that will help out people with learning disabilities, people with uh, you know, partial vision. And, uh, and then you can download it where you have both audio and visual at the same time. And then there are even downloadable braille formats as well for, for your electronic braille devices. You can read the books that way too. 
And I am I am what I'm a BRF downloader. I'm a huge book uh, bookshare fan. So um, uh, anyway, so stand up or sit out uh, is the is the, is the the lead title of your memoir. Talk about how you got involved with athlete uh, with athletics. I guess, you, I guess you started with wrestling. Talk about how that happened and sort of how how you sort of how how it progressed throughout your life. It's a very broad question. And it, when you get around to it, what you learn from it. Okay. Yeah. Um, my fifth grade gym coach introduced us all to wrestling and it let was, me interrupt, uh, let me interrupt you for a second. Was this a school for the blind or is this a, was this oh, a, a high school? Regular, a regular public elementary school. Okay. I was partially sighted back in those days. I had enough eyesight to get myself in trouble. Good. Good. And, good, I, good. Did, and I did. <laughs> um, so, um, the, the, uh, the, the coach introduced us all to wrestling there we were on a mat and uh, just basically uh, didn't teach us very much. We just like lunged at each other a lot. Um, and I found, I found myself uh, feeling very natural doing it. Um, we had a couple of wrestling matches and I beat, beat a couple of really big, strong guys that used to, uh, used to kind of bully me a little bit. And uh, then they didn't bully me anymore after I beat them in the wrestling match. Um, and then my, one of my friends, Joey and I, we wrestled to, uh, what, what, what they call a tie. I think he beat me, but they called it a tie. And that, and that, that kid, Joey ended up going on to be becoming a County champion when we went into high school. And, uh, I was kind of just like a, um, 50% win, 50% loss type of wrestler. So I learned, uh, I learned a lot of things. First of all, I learned how much fun it is to, uh, uh, you know, without injuring anybody to, to really crunch people, you know, <laughs> and uh, this is part of sports uh, for anybody who's squeamish. Uh, you know, what you want to do in sports is you want to go full tilt. Yep. And uh, whether it's hitting a ball or, or, you know, pinning a guy's shoulders to the mat or, you know, whatever it is, you want to go full tilt. And, and it's just a, a joyful adrenaline rush. The next thing I learned was uh, what, what to do about fatigue. Um, I seem I seem to have that as a theme um, in in my book, and it was in my athletic life, especially my wrestling life. When you get really exhausted, you are going one hundred percent for for six minutes, um, and and it doesn't sound like a lot of time, six minutes, but it can feel like an eternity. And um, so, how to manage fatigue and how not to psych yourself out. So I had problems with uh, with kind of the mental outlook on sport. And if I had it to do all over again, I would actually uh, want to work on that element a little more. So I learned something about the mental outlook on sport, um, how to how to really work your your mind, how to work your thinking processes um, so that you're steady. You, you need to be very steady. You can't you can't like just like shoot your entire energy store at the beginning. You have to be more steady, both physically and mentally. Um, then I learned uh, about the camaraderie of you and your teammates. Sounds like a kind of a hackneyed kind of expression, the camaraderie in sports, but it is for real. You, uh, you get to get close with your buddies. Everybody supports one another. Yes, you are. Or supposed to anyway. Uh, yeah, except except uh, except behind closed doors when they give you a hard time. But uh, yes, when you're out there, you know you're you're you ferociously support each other. Actually, um, and then you you know you learn things about wow, 
you know, when you're when you're wrestling before your home school, um, people are actually yelling, um, you know, cheer cheers for you and 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 urging you on. Um, and mostly you you kind of shut that out, but you know it's there. And it and it's a it's like an amazing experience. I'm not, I'm not uh, you know too much of a show person. I'm only a little bit of show person, but back in those days, I was kind of shy. Um, so you learn a little bit about what it's like to have other people pulling for you. And then because I was partially sighted and really did have just enough eyesight to get myself in trouble, I was always getting teased by the kids. And I learned what sports can do for you. Um, you know, not only did I beat some of these kids in wrestling matches, but uh, most of the rest of the kids, the minute they saw not only the good athletes on the wrestling team, but the good athletes on some of the other teams, because we'd all be hanging out in the locker room together, like the, like the, you know, the all America football star. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, those guys saying hi to me in the halls while we were changing classes, it, it went from, uh, from night to day. Um, yeah. so I learned a lot about, uh, kid behavior anyways, um, who you affiliate with can actually increase your stature. You know, I think in the end, like the big lesson I learned uh, for life in general is that slow and steady wins the race. And that that's probably you, you have to stick with it. Um, you have to really modulate yourself and your energy levels. Um, you have to modulate just how much of your ego you allow to be involved. So, so it, it decreases your vulnerability, especially if you happen to lose a match. Um, and and how, to, how to stay the course over the long term, um, literally dealing with fatigue, but also mentally just dealing with um, that slow, steady pace that you have to keep doing if you're going to get through life. So, Tony, one of the things that, that struck me in, in reading your book about your high school experiences on the wrestling mat was you went, you were mainstreamed, it sounds like, throughout your entire, uh, you know, uh, uh, education experience, and as was I. Um, and what happened to me, and I, it sounds like sort of something similar happened to you, is that I came into the high school as the only blind person and um, really had... Nobody knew who I was except this blind person. And in your situation, you were a uh, people discovered that you were the wrestling guy. You weren't just blind; you were a good wrestler. In my situation, it was I was that what I was that drummer. I was the you know the 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 lead drummer in the marching band my senior year, and that gave me a, a different um, uh, gave people different perspective on who I was. And, 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 and got me in with also, ironically enough, football players and athletes, because of mm -hmm. course we, 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 so is that, is that really true for you? Was that sort of what got you involved with the, with the sighted crowd as people sort of knew who you were besides that weird, you know, half blind guy? Well, you know, to some extent, because uh, I, I've been with these kids um, since elementary school. So a lot of them knew me and they knew me through middle school and high school. Um, but they did know me as the, as the blind guy, and uh, they they would tease me and pick on me, and um, and and the girls the girls interestingly were divided. Some of the girls they said, oh, "I'm going to stay away from him," and the other half of the girls said, "Why don't they leave that poor guy alone?" You know, they they so I had I had two different girl factions, uh, <laughs> one pulling for me, and the other one wanting to get away, get away. Um, <laughs> but then when the sports started kicking in, and uh, they they um, uh, you know, they saw that I was uh, 
um, I was above average athlete when you compare me to just regular people. Mm-hmm. You know, I was kind of an average athlete when you compare me to other athletes. But uh, you know, most of the people are just regular people. So so that that increased the stature. Then then you know, first of all, the teasing and everything went way 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 down, and some of the respect went way 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 up. Sure, sure. So you graduated from high school. Uh, you eventually dropped wrestling and picked up other sports. Talk about that. Well, actually, when I went to college, um, I, I picked up wrestling again in my junior and senior year. So I did I did wrestling for for two years there, and I did a little better in college. Um, I was in better shape. I, I was a little bit more grown up, and um, uh, you know, and and, uh, and there was a, it was even more camaraderie in the college team, and uh, we were a small little college. Um, officially, we had what they called club status because we had just begun the team. So I meant we got to wrestle against um, community colleges, other wrestling clubs, um, four-year schools. Um, and I remember once we wrestled against, uh, in, New York, in New York State, there's uh, out on the end of Long Island is uh, Suffolk Community College. That is where all the high school state champions went. Um, to have two years there before they went on to a four-year school. So we wrestled against a squad of high school New York State champions. And all I can say is my guy did not pin me. (laughs) He did beat me by a lot, but he did not pin me. Uh, So that was uh, my college experience. Then then I hung them up. Then I didn't wrestle anymore since uh, since age 21. and it wasn't until um, I, uh, I was in my mid-30s when I picked up my other sport, which was long-distance running. In between, I had other things that I did. I learned how to do some downhill skiing and some cross-country skiing. I learned how to scuba dive. I, I, was, I was for a while a certified scuba diver. I dabbled in all these different things. Um, I write about them in, in the book. And uh, then came uh, my mid-30s, and I really was looking for something to uh, kind of a pick-me-up. It was like I was having an early early midlife crisis, although I didn't think of it that way at the time. And a friend of mine said, why don't you join uh, this group we have? They meet in New York Central Park. It's called the Achilles Track Club. And the Achilles Track Club has branches all around the country and all around the world. And it's a running club for people with disabilities. So not just visually impaired and blind, but people with other disabilities as well. The coach was a um, uh, uh, a below the knee amputee, one leg. So he had this kind of hop skip kind of running motion. Just as an example, there were wheelchair runners and uh, visually impaired and blind runners as well. And uh, so we went and um, I started running and next thing I knew, I was increasing my distances. And next thing I knew, people were saying, you should run in, 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 a, in a race. And I said, uh, I, I'm not good enough to run in a race. Anybody can run in a race. It doesn't even matter if you finish last. Just be there. It's, a, it's an amazing phenomenon, especially in New York City, where everything that happens is always a lot, a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. You know, you start out a race and it'd be 2,000 people all lined up. And, uh, and it was very formal. The New York Roadrunners Club uh, organized them all, pre- very professionally done. And, um, and uh, I got bit by the bug. I lo- That adrenaline rush kicked in again. And I wanted to run longer and longer distances. Um, my running career was, uh, 
Um, I was I was again uh, right there at the 50th percentile. You know, if you saw me running with 2,000 runners, I was going to finish somewhere around 1,000 in. Um, had a few running injuries along the way. They were mostly uh, things like a stress fracture and tendonitis. No, nothing, nothing that had anything to do with my eyesight directly at all. Um, indirectly, some of those injuries did have to do with my eyesight in that um, I couldn't like rest when I needed to rest all the time and run when I was feeling better. I had to, had to always be on the schedule of some running partner that I could, I could make an arrangement with. And so if, uh, I, if I could have that to do over again, um, I, I, think I, I don't think I would get a guide dog to run with, but um, I hear tell that they're working on some robotic guide dogs. So I might go with something like that, but I would do something um, that where I could rest more when I needed to rest by a treadmill um, and just run on the treadmill when I felt good, even if I didn't have a running partner um, and rest when I, when I needed to rest. So I wouldn't have those injuries. So that was an indirect cause of the running injuries. But in terms of my, uh, my accomplishments in running, I'm actually happier in that I finished in the 50th percentile in running than I, than I am about finishing in the 50th percentile in wrestling. Um, losing about half your matches in wrestling is a lot more painful yeah, than just true. finishing at the midpoint <laughs> in a running race. You know? <laughs> so yeah, did you ever participate in marathons? Two. I did two New York City marathons. And uh, first one was uh, like, I wasn't like totally trained. So they said, just walk, run the marathon. So you have the experience of being out there for that much distance and for that length of time. And then next year, when you're in better shape and all that, um, then you can just run the marathon and you will have a, a, a big advantage having had that experience already. And uh, the next year, I got all this television coverage. They found out about me and they did one of those uh, things, uh, the New York City um, television station that covers the marathon does these like little up close and personal interviews. And they they showed me um, by that point, I was doing some triathlons, too. So they showed me ri riding my tandem bicycle, swimming in a swimming pool, running with my running partner. And then I got hurt and I didn't run that marathon. <laughs> so but nobody knew they showed me on the TV and nobody knew if I was in the race or not. They, they, they knew things like that could happen. So they know, sure. they didn't know, but the next year I did run, I was in fantastic shape. And, uh, and I started out so quickly that by the halfway point, I was exhausted. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I kind of staggered through the second half of it. And, uh, and I was it's, not it's, a happy camper, but those, those were, but I was in incredibly good shape. And, um, those were my two marathons and I swore I would never do another one again. And, and I never did. And I think it's because I don't think my body is quite built for that kind of pounding. Um, you got to really train for those things. You got to do 20 mile runs for a few months before the marathon. And I just don't think my body was built for the pounding. Um, so my best race, my favorite race was the half marathon. And I did a whole bunch of half marathons and uh, miles. Did, uh, 13 miles, 13.1 miles. So the standard marathon is 26.2 half marathon is 13.1. And, uh, so I did, I did very well in those there. I finished more like in this, in the, uh, in the 60th percentile. Yeah, there you go. I did better. Uh, and then I mentioned before I got into triathlons because one day while sitting on the physical therapy table, the guy next, next table over 
said, you know, we were talking and he said, you could, you could do triathlons. And he talked me into buying a, a $2,000 tandem bicycle. And, you know, said there's a, there's a triathlon in New York central park where the, where the swimming is in a pool. So the lanes are roped off. You don't have to worry about having a swimming guide like you would if you're in open water. Um, so you could just swim that and it's a short race. It's not very long. Um, and, and you could ride your bike and you could have a running partner like you do all the time when you run and you could do triathlons. And I did, I did a whole bunch of triathlons and, uh, really loved them. That was a lot of fun too, because then your training was uh, much more diverse. Now you're, yeah. you're cycling and you're swimming and you're biking, you're lifting weights, you're doing all this stuff. And so, so those are my, those are my two major careers, wrestling and running. Okay, I, I, I just a just a couple of, of comments which you're welcome to react to or not. Uh, the first is, you know, when I read the book, my sort of immediate reaction as one who also dabbled in wrestling, although I, you're much better than I was, uh, is um, there there are two different body types, right? I mean, running is strikes me as a sort of different body requirements than than being a wrestler. Um, that's one. That's my first comment. My, I, how do you react to that? Um, well, you know, running pretty, pretty much anybody can, any body type can run though. You know, sure. see, it's according to what kind of running you're, if, like, for example, if you're, if you're thinking about like those sprinters, um, right. then there's a lot that, that's, that's very power driven. So if you watch, you look at their legs, um, you know, you see really powerfully built legs. Um, the long distance runner is more, is more getting into a glide, trying to be in a glide, a regular, regular rhythm in pretty much any kind of body type will, will adjust. I've, I've seen cyclists, um, who also run and it's the funniest thing. This is back when I could still see a little bit, um, their legs are all bulked up and everything. And then the whole rest of them is kind of, kind of skinny <laughs> cycling. Cycling doesn't do a whole lot for your upper body really. Yeah. I would imagine and, and, um, but you, but you, but those guys were they were they were running, um, and and so I would say that's a um, it's a little bit more um, uh, de- democratic, I guess, long distance running, mm-hmm. wrestling, wrestling. Um, even though my father said you're always so worried about you know being stronger, being stronger, um, and I said yes because I don't want to get killed out there on the mats. Yeah. Um, wrestling does require um, at, at least that you have muscle. Yep. Yeah, and based on how your body is and how heavy you are, um, is is the weight class that you will wrestle in. Um, so because they have multiple weight classes, um, you you know you you could be the same height as somebody else, but you may be ten pounds heavier. So you would weigh, you would wrestle in a higher weight class. So so that's how the body type thing gets compensated for by the weight classes. But the the uh, the main thing I would say is. Uh, um, there's an awful lot of strong, strong people out there trying to wrestle and you, you really don't want to get mashed by any of them. So you have to be strong too. And my other comment, uh, I I sort of smiled when you talked about running, you know, the marathon and, you know, sort of, uh, you know, running so fast, you had to sort of struggle, struggle through the uh, second half of the race, Mm -hmm. you know, and you talked about how slow and steady wins the wrestling match And, and my sort of general reaction uh, is you know sometimes life lessons are hard to learn, right? You know you you make the same mistakes I do over and over and over again, and you hope that you will get better over time. But uh, I was sort of I had a smile. Is that is that a fair assessment? You know you you think you've learned your stuff, and then then you run your marathon, and all of a sudden you're like exhausted after the first thirteen miles. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to turn a, a quick corner, uh, Tony. 
because uh, um, I sort of knew you sort of indirectly as in your role as an administrator. You, you, you ran a lot of sort of different kinds of programs, I think, primarily for blind people. Can you talk about some of that stuff, your sort of your career, your career track? Sure. Um, well, I, I say this jokingly, and it's probably there is some truth to this, too. Um, I'm, a, I'm a perfect example of the Peter principle. Sorry, sorry, Peter. Uh, the, the Peter principle, I mean, you will sooner or later rise to the level of your incompetence. That's the Peter principle. Um, so I started out as a rehab counselor, you know, had a rehab counselor when I was a college student. And, you know, I, I got accepted into a rehab counseling program and, and thought that felt very comfortable. So I went with what, what felt comfortable. What Would, that I knew be vocational? I Would that be vocational rehabilitation? Yes, vocational rehab counseling. Yes, um, and um, and also looming over me the entire span of my life was um, you have an eye condition called retinitis pigmentosa, Tony, and you are you have the type where we we know you're going to lose all your sight eventually. So pick something that you can you can imagine keeping on doing at least as as much as we can imagine in the 1970s when I was making these decisions, as much as we can imagine that you could keep on doing that, that career. Um, so my father wanted me to be a lawyer. I was going to be a lawyer from like when I was seven years old, you know, and, um, and, and then I fell in love with psychology and then I became a, a rehab counselor and then I worked as a counselor and then I got promoted to supervisor and I was a very good supervisor. So I was nowhere near my Peter principal yet. I was doing very, very well. Because I had been a counselor and I was just helping other counselors to be counselors. And then I got promoted to being a district office manager. And this was the beginning of the Peter Principle, because now I had to manage, um, you know, an office and deal with, you know, people in, 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 uh, in the state capital and um, personnel issues and stuff like that, that, that you don't usually come across um, un until you get to a position like that. Yeah. So now you're starting to learn. And, uh, and of course, you're starting to, to make mistakes. And of course, you're learning way more about your personality than you ever wanted to know. Now is when you start to learn what your strengths and your weaknesses are and what your tendencies are. You know, and, and uh, I, had to, I had to get over the tendency, and, and I haven't totally succeeded, as to not get impatient with people. Mm -hmm. So I had to get over that. Uh, on the other hand, um, I was pretty good at holding my ground when. I felt I was right about something. And sometimes that's not a good thing either. Sometimes you really have to be, you have to strategically back off. So I started learning all these things that had to do with me as a person while I was in, uh, in that manager job. Um, and then I, then I uh, actually, I jumped ship. I left the state service. I was with the state of New York, the commission for the blind. And um, I went to a private agency for the blind um, called Lighthouse International which was a very big and very, uh, very rich agency for the blind in New York City. Um, and I went away to California uh, for 15 years. When I came back, they, they were gone. Yep. They disappeared. They merged with another organization. So, so much for being rich. But I was there when they were rich. They had a beautiful, newly renovated building. And I managed there too. And uh, I worked very hard. But I was working so hard that I felt like I was uh, I was no longer being seen by anybody on the outside. The whole my whole working world was inside the four walls of that agency, and I was starting to get uncomfortable. So then um, 
my, my future boss happened to be visiting the lighthouse and we knew each other because I had met him at a conference. And uh, next thing I know, he's recruiting for a position with the American Foundation for the Blind. And the position was uh, in their employment center out in San Francisco. And I got the job and um, I, I left and um, I, I had recently gotten divorced. So I wasn't attached um, where I couldn't leave. And so there I went to San Francisco and that began 15 years in California. And five years later, I got the position of the, um, uh, the I was a deputy director with the California Rehab Agency, the Department of Rehabilitation. And um, I was in charge of the blind and deaf division. So it's kind of like I had become a director of a commission for the blind, except it was a division within the larger agency. And that's where I learned uh, how about the good and the bad and the ugly of having to, to fight. So, you know, uh, Peter, you and I were, were, were chatting by email about administration and advocacy sometimes being rolled into one. Yep. Uh, that's really where I started learning it right there. Cause that I was, I was competing against other divisions that also wanted money and, uh, and staffing. And then the, then the governor orders, uh, um, you know, a, um, a, re a reduction in force, you know, a, a layoff plan to, to get um, the state of California to be more solvent and things like that. And uh, you had a, you had a like fight for every staff member so that you, uh, you, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't lose your effectiveness. And, um, and so that's where I learned uh, you, you, you can do that and you will win and you will lose and there will be hard feelings. And yet at the same time, you, you will all come to each other's uh, aid when, 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 when needed. It's a very interesting dynamic. So my, my competitors were fellow deputy directors and the, you know, and the, and the people above us. And uh, we were answering to people above, you know, out, out in the in the gubernatorial administration. Uh, the governor that appointed me, by the way, I was I wasn't an appointee by the governor was um, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Ah, I was uh, I was an appointee of the Terminator. Yes. <laughs> and, and, I, and I managed to get within 15 feet of him a couple of times, but I never really got to shake his hand or anything. But, uh, you know, I got. I got to at least uh, be in his presence. Um, so uh, that's where I learned. Um, I, I also learned. I also learned about um, the the most um, problematic program in the voc rehab system. Excuse me, I have to turn my head and cough for one second. <coughs> the most problematic program that the voc rehab system operates is the business enterprise program. Mm -hmm. And the reason I say problematic, it's, it's problematic, not from not conceptually, you know, not enough necessarily for how a lot of the people who are running, you know, business businesses um, are doing. Um, some are doing extremely well. Some are doing marginally, but uh, most are doing well. No, it's more of a problem from the administrative point of view, which was my vantage point, the administration, because it's kind of an odd duck within that, that kind of a system. Um, it was put there because it's a disability, you know, oriented program. Uh, but when you see these kind of odd ducks sitting inside of a larger system, there's always going to be little problems. 
And little did I know that the next job that I was going to have, I was going to be the odd duck and my program was going to be the odd duck in a larger system. Um, so after a while, the politics got very thick around uh, mostly the BEP program. And uh, I was warned by people, uh, Tony, I think you better get out of here before they, they decide to do an expedient um, and, you know, chop off the head um, in, order to, in order to stop some of the complaining, even though you, you Tony, are probably, uh, you know, you did more for, for relations with the vendors and that kind of thing than most did. Um, there's still a lot of things people don't, don't like about how the program was being run at that time. And, um, and whenever I would go to state agency directors meetings, which was twice a year, um, uh, you know, of all the things that we would have to talk about, 60% or even more of our time was spent on the BEP. Hmm. So everyone was, was uh, people would talk about the days of the wars and how, thank God, the wars are over for them. And others would talk about that we're still in the wars <laughs> right now. You would never hear that about any other program but, but the BEP. So I took the people's advice and I, I found myself another job before, before they kicked me out of the one I was in. Um, and that's when I went to uh, the VA, went to the VA in Southern California. Now there, my job was to open up a residential rehabilitation center for blinded veterans. Now, most of the blinded veterans that get served in the, in the blindness system, especially the VA blindness system, are older veterans. We had, we had very few young veterans. I think that the youngest one I saw was a 19-year-old Marine. He was still active duty, but they sent them to the center because he had retinitis pigmentosa, and they, they all figured it out on night, night patrol training which is a very typical thing, by the way. Sometimes people don't even know they've got an eyesight problem until they have to do something in the dark. Yeah, sure. Um, my father was a Marine. He told me, he said, there were guys, they, they said, oh, you know, can I hang on to you? You know, can I hang on to your bat, your backpack? You know, it's because they couldn't see. Um, so um, the, the, the job was to open up a rehab center. And uh, luckily the funding was approved. The building was, was half built when I got there. Um, I had to hire all the staff and they gave me somebody to help me to get started. They, they did everything right. And I did everything right. We ordered all the furniture, all the equipment. We started hiring the supervisory level staff. And then they all started hiring their regular staff. And when I was done, I had a staff of 45, including uh, 12, uh, 12 people in, uh, on a nursing staff because these facilities are housed inside of VA hospitals. So you are in a medical model. So here we have this thing that this hospital has never seen before, a blind rehab facility sitting inside of a, of a medical hospital. Now they had other specialty facilities. There was a very, very good spinal injury facility. But uh, you know, when you go over there, you, you see a lot of the activity were, were traditional medical things. Mm -hmm. even, even the physical and occupational therapies were still kind of um, identifiable by, by the doctors and the nurses. And then there's a lot of healthcare. People with spinal cord injuries have to be really careful about their health. Sure. Um, so, so that wasn't even as odd a duck as my blind rehab center was where, where practically nothing that we did was familiar to the medical community in the hospital. And people walking around hospitals with canes mostly scares the bejesus out of people. Um, and so, you know, we had our white cane uh, 
awareness days and we did all of the things that we were supposed to do. We participated. I'd walk into uh, administrators meetings, me and my cane. And, you know, you could almost hear a collective breath um, being, mm-hmm. being held until they got used to me uh, being there. And then I was just one of the guys from that one of that one of the gang from that point forward. But it took a lot of it took a lot of um, dealing with, uh, um, uh, you know, hidden prejudices, assumptions, um, resentment, even. Um, because there's people who, who uh, especially I feel, especially like the doctors, um, who walk around generally feeling rather omnipotent mm-hmm. and omniscient. Uh, they know things and they're, they're indestructible. And, uh, and they walk around, they see me, and it, it kicks up. Uh, Sigmund Freud would have, would have uh, fun with all this. It just kicks up all these unconscious feelings. In them. You, could, you could feel it. It's palpable, sometimes really palpable. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, and, and, and all you could do, and this is where slow and steady wins the race, all I could do was to keep on keeping on, just yep. keep doing my work, building my program, uh, you know, answering questions about why don't you have, uh, you know, why don't you have enough uh, rehab closures yet? And how come your beds, you got some empty beds and what's going on with your recruitment? So, so then, you know, then, then, then came the ugly part of administration too, when, when things are not always hunky-dory. But I learned, um, I learned to stay the course. I held my ground. Uh, one time they wanted to take some space from my rehab center for, for a different kind of service. And I held my ground. I got the veterans organization to come. The local Congress member came and they backed off. And then from that point on, uh, I was persona non grata yet again. Mm-hmm. Um, so as soon as I could take my retirement, I, 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 uh, I took a good retirement. I left them completely functional. They were mature and they are doing well seven years later. And um, I decided um, I'm going to come. I'm going to go back home to New York. Uh, California has been a wonderful place, but uh, my mother says she misses me. So I'm going back home to New York. And, and then since then, I've just taken some part-time jobs, um, including the one I'm doing now with Mississippi State University. Um, but the, in terms of life lessons, um, you know, I've been, I've, been under, I've been under fire. I've been under fire. I've done well and I've done poorly. Um, I've got bruises. I might even have a little PTSD because of it. Hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I, I am proud. I am proud. I held my chest high and my head high. Um, and I did what I was supposed to do. And I accomplished what I was there for, even if even if it meant making enemies. Um, and so even if I could do it all over again, I probably would do things differently. I probably would be a little a little more politic. Um, but, you know, when they are basically challenging you to uh, stand up and, uh, and 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 defend your your, your facility, these this guy, this old athlete. His reflex is to compete, you know, is to fight back. And, uh, you know, I don't know if I'll ever not be that way. So I, I have a comment uh, about, about all of this. And I'm curious because I've, I've had similar experiences, but in a very different place that, than you have. And what, what I've come to the conclusion of is it's a lot harder or at least somewhat harder for us blind people to be more politic mm-hmm. um, be, because not only do we have the problems that you were addressing, but we also have the problem that people don't quite believe that we can do what we what we can do. 
Um, and I think that's even more true in the cor- in, in the corporate world, if you will. Um, uh, and and um, I, I think sometimes speech on demand. We we uh, it's, I think it's harder for us to play the game. Uh, I've been wondering if you if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, you know, I, I tell you, um, early on, I have two two quick stories that illustrate very well what you are saying. One, so I, uh, they said, would you please present before the entire administration, you know, all of the heads of the different units and services within the hospital? Just give us a give us a give us a PowerPoint. Tell us about blind rehab and your blind rehab center and all that stuff. So uh, my business manager and I put together a nice PowerPoint display. Uh, We rehearsed with each other. Um, I had my notes. Slide one is this. Slide two is that. Right, 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 right. My my device in front of me on the podium. Yep. And I would tell tell the guy, um, okay, go to the next slide now. And and he would. And 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 after I was done with what I thought was an amazing presentation, the first question I got asked was. How, how do you do that with the PowerPoints and everything? Uh-huh. So, yeah. I, so then I said, Frank, Frank and I rehearsed. So that yeah. was that one. And another occasion, um, they were showing a video um, of some type and um, it was all um, just, just pictures. And apparently it was a rapid moving from frame to frame to frame. And this, uh, this nurse came and sat next to me. She was like a nurse administrator. And uh, she, started, she started doing audio description. And she did an incredibly good job. And I said, oh, my God, you know, I, you know, you didn't have to do that. Thank you. Thank you. That was really cool. And she said, from now on, you don't show up here without, without a handler. Mm-hmm. You need to have an attendant with you. Yeah, I said, yeah. oh, man. I said, so I answered her. I said, see, I have to, I have to balance out the subliminal messages I'm giving. Sure. Um, if I start showing up here with, with attendance and, and all that, they for sure I'm reinforcing the business of, they don't think that I can function. They don't think that I can do yeah. um, my job. They might not think I can even function as just a human being. Um, I can't, I have to take the risk of maybe having to get assistance on the spot if something is going on, but I can't walk around without being independent. So I think that uh, it, it's a, it's a very fine line. And, yeah. and by, by the way, uh, I, I, I go to church and the minister who is perfectly sighted, non-disabled, she regularly asks, asks the a person to hit the next slide. It's, you know, it's just do it all the time, but she does it fairly regularly, you know, uh, can anybody hear me yes. now? We, now I can. Okay. Uh, I, the system muted me for several minutes. Tony, I have two questions for you. We do actually, we have a raised hand. Oh, good. Welcome. So that, and you've been, you were unmuted because you're unmuted because your speech was going off, but we do have a raised hand that was in the queue. So let's, let's do it. Who is All right. the raised hand? First up is Jelaine, uh, is Jane Tolino. Jane, you may unmute. Hi, Jane. Hi, Jane. Welcome Hello. to the program. Hello to all of you. Tony, I have so, so much passion and compassion for you. Um, I always wanted to be a runner and found that scheduling partners was not going to work. But competition, I think, should have been my middle name. I love it. One of my favorite two sayings, well, there are a couple, but one I was in our son's wrestling room. He wrestled from first grade on up. And I used to think it was legalized brawling until he got better at it. But on their wrestling room wall, 
and I can't think of the name of the man who said it, but it was, many have the will to win, but few have the will to plan to win. And I like that very much. And the other one is lead, follow, or get out of my way. (laughs) Um, I loved hearing all of your connections through rehab. Um, I love, I I think your new name should be, why not? Why not? Anyway, I just wanted to say that I've really enjoyed this program. Um, So there. That's all. So, so thank you, Jane. That, Thanks that's a lot. Thanks, Thanks for participating. Uh, any other hands raised? Um, Not, at this, okay. Not at this time. Okay. So I have right. two questions, Tony. How long have you been back in New York? And how did you hear about Mississippi State University? How did that enter into your venues? Uh, I've been back in New York seven, seven years, coming up soon, seven years. And... Um, Let's see. I, I um, Mississippi knew State about them before um, I, I got back here because I had worked with them on and off for years and years. So professional being a member of the, my professional organization, um, AER, it's it's the the people who work with educators and rehabilitation uh, uh, personnel. And uh, so I got to meet a lot of people, go to conferences. So th- that had been going on for a long, long, long time. Um, about 25 years, I was regularly going to professional organization. So I got to know these people. And uh, well, we did some events together and things like that. And then um, I was on their advisory council for, for five years. And then I turned off of it. And then somebody left and they desperately needed somebody to fill this position that I'm in right now. And, uh, and the, uh, the director called me up and said, could you please do this for us? And I said, I can't say her name is Michelle, Michelle McDonald. And I said, I can't say no to you. You know that. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I really don't. Um, I have no idea what I'm saying yes to, um, but it won't be the first time I have dived into something figuring that I will figure it out as I go along. So that's how I found out about the job. It was because they knew me and then they, then they kind of got desperate real fast. And then I, I suppose, foolhardily said yes to something. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Jane Colino, Jane And I, 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 I want to I comment on that because I, in my experience uh, in, in the employment field, my experience is that I've gotten hired by employers Two things need to happen um, in order for me to get hired. One was a, a certain comf- comfort with difference, uh-huh. and the other was a certain desperate, <laughs> a cer- certain desperation. Uh, and I really mean that seriously. You know, all oh. my jobs thinking about it, they they needed somebody, um, and really, and and they needed to take a risk because they couldn't find the right person. You know, and I didn't always fit uh, check all the boxes. But I, you know, uh, for whatever reason, I, I, you know, I, I, I was there when I, when they needed me and it really is, there is a desperation factor involved. I really do believe that, um, that people are not going to hire people with disabilities generally without those two things in play. Uh, that's, that's been my experience. I don't know what your, what your sense about it is, but that's sort of mine, especially in sort of mid-level management type positions. I'm not talking about, you know, sort of intro, customer service positions necessarily, mm-hmm. but sort of mid-level sort of management or consulting roles. Well, you know, that, that as you say it, um, I got to talk to you more because you really get me thinking, by the way. Okay. Um, 
That's when, a good when thing. I, when I took the job, I'm, by the way, I'm in the Bronx. And, oh, well, uh, that explains the racket. Okay. We always have, we always have the sirens because it's <laughs> yeah, a yeah, yeah. fast I lived road. In, I lived in New York for 15 years, so I get uh, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. They, they, no, this is a very fast street. They just yeah. love to take this street. Um, yeah. When I got hired for the, let's see, my first manager job, I'll never know for sure what happened there, but the, but the, the lady that retired um, left an office that was known as, uh, as kind of a problematic office. Some of the people who worked in there were difficult um, characters. And they said, you know what? We can't, we can't, I was already, I was already managing another office. Mm-hmm. Um, so they said, we can't put an inexperienced person in this office. They'll chew them up and spit them out. So they asked me to go, go take that office. And, and I had a good time there. You know, I, mm-hmm. I didn't have too, any trouble there. I, it was good. Um, then uh, um, the next job, the next two jobs, I don't think there was any desperation factor. But then there was the job with the state of California. Mm-hmm. And um, the, the, the politics were thick. I'm sure both consumer organizations were battling it out with each other, you know, with the administration, you, you know. Who are you going to hire for that job? Somebody, somebody that really knows about the blind and all that stuff. Meanwhile, the de- the deaf community was also in there fighting. You got to find somebody who knows about the deaf too, because mm-hmm. you know. So I think I got picked because they knew I knew a lot about rehab. I was you know I was working in the field for so long, and because I had come from out of state, and I was I was like the perfect well-prepared, well-trained, neutral, neutral, politically neutral person. And so the desperation was an interesting one, but I think there was, I think they were saying, oh my God, whoever we hire, we're going to, we're going to take heat. So when they hired me, I think people were kind of, oh, you slick so-and-sos, you, you really did a good job. You know, um, the, the other job with the, with the VA, I got the feeling that they were having trouble getting a highly qualified person. When I saw yeah, some minute. of the people, when I saw some of the people I was competing against, they they were nowhere near as qualified as I was for that job. So when they saw me, they said, we better take him right away. So even there, there was uh, you know, you have to be Johnny on the spot um, and they need to have a little bit of a need. Yeah, I, I think there really is some truth to that. I, th- I think it, it really, I, I, in my background in the diversity and inclusion arena, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And, and we're running out of time, and I really do appreciate your time with us. Maybe we'll bring you back to talk a little more about some of this stuff. Um, You're a very I, inspirational yeah, person, yeah, yeah. Tony. So anyway, Tony, thank, thank you. you. Thank you for joining us. And uh, let's keep in touch, Tony. Actually, we do keep in touch by email. Maybe we should talk to each other once in a while. Yeah, yeah. Tony, yeah. thank you very much. We appreciate your willingness to come on today. You're an inspiration. Thank you, everybody. I appreciate it. Anytime. Next week, we have an old veteran coming back. Not old, literally. He's a young man. I'm sure he'd like us to say that. And he is. Former New York Congressman John LeBoutlier will be back, keeping us up to date on national politics and all related topics. That'll be next week on In Perspective. In the meantime, thank you, Ray, for your assistance. Cindy, for your assistance as well. And Peter, as always. And for our participants, Jane and a couple of other folks I I heard, go safe with God's abundance blessings. Have a nice week, everybody. And happy 4th, everybody. Happy 4th of July.